It's Monday, October 31st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, dispatches from the Recreational Fear Lab on why being scared might be a healthy thing. And the raucous Halloween parties Queen Victoria used to throw in Scotland. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Perhaps you spent this past month watching a few more horror movies than usual, revisiting some old classics, or maybe watching the new Halloween Ends, or Guillermo del Toro's Netflix anthology series Cabinet of Curiosities. Maybe you even hit up a haunted house or some other vaguely spooky-themed activity. Or perhaps you spent the month doing your best to avoid all of those things because you prefer not to be scared, preferring pumpkin patches and hocus-pocus to houses of horror and Freddy Krueger. What is it, though, that makes some people love being scared? Researchers at Our House University's Recreational Fear Lab have been trying to find out. Their research center in Denmark conducts lab studies, survey studies, and real-world empirical studies to understand why humans enjoy recreational fear. Recreational fear is described by the researchers on their website and in an article they wrote, which was recently republished in Slate, as all those examples I listed above, scary movies, haunted houses, but also roller coasters, true crime tales, ghost stories, smaller stakes feats of daring athleticism, and even babies playing peekaboo or small children playing hide-and-seek. Essentially, it's anything that can spark fear, but is still mostly done from a safe distance, relatively within the world of play or make-believe. Quoting Matthias Klassen from the Recreational Fear Lab, One hypothesis is that recreational fear is a form of play behavior, which is widespread in the animal kingdom and ubiquitous among humans. When an organism plays, it learns important skills and develops strategies for survival. Play-fighting kittens train their ability to hold their own in a hostile encounter, but with little risk and low cost compared to the real thing. Same with humans. When we play, we learn important things about the physical and social world, and about our own inner world. When we engage in recreational fear activities specifically, from peekaboo to horror movie watching, we play with fear, challenge our limits, and learn about our own physiological and psychological responses to stress. In other words, recreational fear might actually be good for us, end quote. One of their studies involved strapping heart monitors to visitors of a particularly scary haunted house in Denmark. Armed additionally with surveillance cameras and follow-up questionnaires, the researchers were able to get a fairly comprehensive understanding of each visitor's experience. And overall, the responses backed up their hypothesis that engaging in activities like haunted houses was considered a kind of play. But the thing about play is that it needs to remain playful. It can't get too real. Quoting again, You might think that relationship is linear. The more fear, the better. But when we plotted the actual relationship between fear and enjoyment, it looked like an upside-down U. In other words, when people go to a haunted attraction, they don't want too little fear, which is boring, and they don't want too much fear, which is unpleasant. What they want is to hit what we call the sweet spot of fear— 
That doesn't just go for high-intensity haunted attractions, either. When you hurdle a kid into the air, you don't want it to be too tame or too wild. When teenagers joyride their bikes, they need just the right amount of tummy-tickling arousal. And when you pick a horror movie on Netflix, you try to go for the one that sits just at the right point on the scarometer. End quote. Another study by a different group on that same haunted house found that some people even work to regulate their own fear so they can hit that sweet spot. The team also mentions a study that I've brought up before in which fans of horror movies showed better psychological resilience at the start of the COVID-19 lockdowns, in part because their play with horror had helped them be able to regulate and manage their fears. And a preliminary study from the Recreational Fear Lab suggests that some people with anxiety and depression might actually get relief from recreational fear, which is something I've anecdotally heard a few times from people. As the researchers say, quote, Maybe it's about escaping anhedonia, emotional flatlining, momentarily, and maybe it's about playing with troublesome emotions in a controllable context. For fear to be fun, you need to feel not only that the levels are just so, but that you are in relative control of the experience." End quote. But again, if you're thinking of prescribing yourself some fear to help train yourself on how you respond or how you regulate your response, remember that crucial sweet spot. Especially if you're already dealing with anxiety, depression, or other mental health issues or traumatic experiences in your past, you could easily expose yourself to subject matter that tips the scales into too scary to be fun or useful. It seems to be a delicate balance, but an interesting finding nonetheless. And if you end up doing something a bit scarier than you usually would tonight or any other time, you can try reframing it as hitting the gym for your psyche, some weight training to better prepare you to fight real-world horrors when they next rear their ugly heads. Well, it's Halloween today, so I'm squeezing in one last themed segment this month, specifically about an unlikely fan of the holiday who used to party it up big time every October 31st. I'm talking about Queen Victoria. Starting in the 1860s and lasting until towards the end of her life, Queen Victoria would travel up to Balmoral Castle in Scotland each autumn, and while there, celebrate Halloween with the locals and throw a huge party at the castle. Now, the name Balmoral Castle may ring a few bells for you, even if you're not from the United Kingdom, because it's where Queen Victoria's great-granddaughter, Queen Elizabeth II, passed away this September. And it was a site of much importance to both Elizabeth and Victoria, Victoria and her husband Prince Albert having commissioned the building of the current home on the estate back in the 1850s. Accounts from locals and Queen Victoria's own diaries indicate that a particularly favorite time of hers at the castle was Halloween. In 1866, she was invited to the home of the head keeper of Balmoral, where she witnessed the local tradition of children carrying torches to a huge bonfire on the hill. She writes in her Highland Journals, quote, While we were at Mrs. Grant's, we saw the commencement of the keeping of Halloween. All the children came out with burning torches, shouting. The Protestants generally keep Halloween on the old day, November 12th, and the Catholics on this day. But hearing I had wished to see it two years ago, they all decided to keep it today. And when we drove home, we saw all the gillies coming along with burning torches, and torches and bonfires appeared also on the opposite side of the water. We went upstairs to look at it from the windows, from whence it had a very 
pretty effect. On the same day in the following year, we had an opportunity of again seeing the celebration of Halloween and even of taking part in it. We had been out driving, but we hurried back in time for the celebration. Louise got out and took a torch, walking by the side of the carriage and looking like one of the witches in Macbeth. As we approached Balmoral, the keepers and their wives and children, the gillies and other people met us, all with torches. We got out at the house where Leopold had joined us and a torch was given to him. We walked round the whole house, everyone carrying torches, which had a very pretty effect. After this, a bonfire was made of all the torches close to the house, and they danced reels whilst Ross played the pipes." End quote. Uh, Gilly, by the way, meant an outdoorsman who would attend the upper class on their hunting and fishing excursions, and a reel is a Scottish folk dance. After those first two years, the Queen became more and more involved in the local celebrations, even hosting elaborate parties at Balmoral, to the point that some nicknamed the day the Queen's Halloween. And according to Scottish Field, in 1874, pre-party celebrations got so out of hand that the evening's dance at the castle was cancelled because, quote, some of the revelers behaved in a rather disorderly manner at the night's bonfire, end quote. Now, while the locals all had a good time, others, particularly back in London, were critical of the Queen's involvement in such a holiday. While the kinds of superstitions that went along with Halloween were particularly popular during this era, and Queen Victoria was known to be a big fan of such things, critics didn't think it was right for the head of the Church of England to be engaging with such a blatant display of punitively ungodly superstition. Interestingly, however, historian David J. Skull points out that for all the superstition and folklore involved in Scottish Halloween celebrations, it was still thought of as more respectable, or at least more grounded in tradition, than what was going on in the United States at the time. He points to a contemporary account from 19th century historian William Shepard Walsh, who juxtaposes the rowdy behavior of mischievous American boys with the meticulously planned parties at Balmoral. Walsh writes, quote, In the United States, it is to be regretted that the spirit of rowdyism has in a measure superseded the kindly old customs. In towns and villages, gangs of hoodlums throng the streets, ringing the doorbells or wrenching the handles from their sockets and taking gates from off their hinges. But on a party supervised by Queen Victoria, Walsh writes, quote, Preparations had been made days beforehand, and farmers and others for miles around were present. When darkness set in, the celebration began, and Her Majesty and the Princess Beatrice, each bearing a large torch, drove out in an open phaeton. A procession formed of the tenants and servants on the estate followed, all carrying huge torches lighted. They walked through the grounds and around the castle, and the scene at the procession moved onwards was very weird and striking. End quote. But to some devout Protestants, even that scene was too close to devilry. Interestingly, for how popular superstition-fueled activities were around Halloween, in Britain throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, they weren't typically associated with themes of death and the macabre. Historian Nicholas Rogers writes, quote, By the 18th century, Halloween's superstitions were being translated into courtship rituals and games. They were being adapted to a more secular milieu in which expectations of life were increasing. 
The shift of emphasis can be seen in the adaptation of the medieval Memento Mori to Halloween. A Memento Mori is a reminder or foreboding of death, captured in medieval woodcuts in the shape of a skull, an hourglass, a coffin, or a skeleton. In the translation of this convention to Halloween, when young women divine their fate the midnight hour, the visage encountered is more likely to be her future husband than the mask of death. Only rarely do the divination rituals mention a coffin or a ghost or the voice of the Grim Reaper. Halloween in Britain increasingly celebrated life, not death. End quote. And one of the more popular accounts of the various courtship and fortune-telling games that persists to this day is Robert Burns' 1785 poem, Halloween. The longest of any of Burns' poems, it's one of the first poems to be written about Halloween in English, although it is written in the Scots dialect. And the poem showcases various traditions of the time, particularly different games surrounding the recent apple and corn harvests, as well as some light mischief-making, courtship rituals, and time spent together as a family, telling stories and dancing. So I'll end today with a selection from the poem, the first several stanzas and the last few. And because much of the vocabulary in the original may be incomprehensible to non-Scottish listeners, I've combined the original with a standard English translation. So some of the original text here will be retained because I think the context and rhythm fills in any gaps pretty well. But here and there, the translated version is, I think, necessary for a reading without footnotes. Although it's also worth noting that even Burns himself included footnotes in the original, because the traditions described were still thought to be a bit localized to Western Scotland at the time. And overall, this poem is way better heard in the original Scots, read by someone with a Scottish accent. So if you want the full experience, I'm linking to a reading of the original from a Scottish creator on YouTube. But just for the heck of it, here is a selection in my boring American accent. Upon the night when fairies light on Cassillis Dowans dance, or o'er the lays in splendid blaze on sprightly coursers prance, or for Kalean the route is taken beneath the moon's pale beams, there up the cove to stray and rove among the rocks and streams, to sport that night among the bonny winding banks, where dune runs wimplin' clear, where Bruce once ruled the martial ranks and shook his carrick spear, some merry friendly country folks together did convene, to burn their nuts and pull their stocks and have their Halloween full blithe that night. The lasses' feet and cleanly neats more lovely when they're fine, their faces blithe sweetly show hearts loyal and warm and kind the lads so neat with love knots well knotted on their garters some uncommonly shy and some with talk make girls hearts go beating sometimes fast at night then first and foremost through the kale their stocks must all be sought once they shut their eyes and grope and choose for big ones and straight ones poor foolish will fell off the drift and wandered through the bokale and pulled for want of better shift a runt was like a so tail so bent that night then straight or crooked earth or none they roar and cry a thruther the very children toddling run with stalks over their shoulders. And if the custocks sweet or sour, with pocket knives they taste them, then cozily above the door with canny care they've placed them to lie that night. In order on the clean hearthstone, the luggies three are ranged, and every time great care is taken to see them duly changed. 
Old Uncle John, who wedlocks joys since Mars year did desire, because he got the tomb dish thrice, he heaved them on the fire in wrath that night. With merry songs and friendly cracks, I wagered they did not weary. A wondrous tales and funny jokes, their sports were cheap and cheery. Till buttered sows with fragrant lunt set all their tongues a wagon. Then, with a social glass of strunt, they parted off career in full blithe that night. Well, Taylor Swift just made history again. Following the release of her latest album, Midnights, she has just become the first artist to claim all 10 top 10 slots on the Billboard Hot 100. That's right, the top 10 songs on the Billboard chart right now are all Taylor Swift songs. The closest artist to achieving this previously was Drake, who had 9 out of the 10 last September. And with these 10 top 10s added to her slate, Taylor Swift has now become the woman with the most top 10s in Billboard charts history, just beating out Madonna at 38. Drake is the all-time top individual artist in that slot with 59 total top 10s. But still, dang, go T-Swift. But that's going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.